The AMA Moving Medicine podcast highlights innovation and emerging issues that impact physicians and patients today. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's Moving Medicine video and podcast. Today, I'm joined by Todd Askew, the AMA's Senior Vice President of Advocacy in Washington, D.C. He's going to give us an update on advocacy issues that are very critical to physicians right now. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to talk about kind of four big issues uh, that your team is working on right now. Let's start with this issue of surprise billing, which there's been a lot of news out. Why don't you just update folks on kind of where we're at right now? Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Uh, you'll remember uh, that the surprise billing law passed uh, just over, over a year ago, and there were some important protections there to protect patients from uh, unexpected bills. Uh, for example, when they go to emergency room and there's not a sufficient number of in-network providers uh, at that facility. And so in those cases where the patient didn't really have the option to select an in-network physician, uh, the patient's cost sharing uh, was to be limited to the amount that they would have paid in network and then the plan and the physician kind of work out the difference. But in those cases where they couldn't work out a difference, the law set up an independent arbitration uh, provision so that uh, there was a process to determine what the uh, final payment amount was, uh, was. And so as written by Congress, the arbiter was supposed to consider what was known as the qualified payment amount, which is essentially what they pay others. Uh, and then also, uh, um, other factors that either party could submit. It could be special circumstances surrounding the case. It could be previously contracted amounts. Uh, so things like that that could potentially help the physician uh, argue for a, a more favorable payment rate. Uh, however, when the government issued their final rules uh, this past fall, uh, they instructed the arbiter to consider that insurance plan amount as the proper amount unless these other factors met a fairly high bar. And that was really in contradiction to what the statute said that the arbiter was supposed to look at all these factors. And so as a result of, of that uh, interpretation by the government, a number of lawsuits have been filed, uh, one by Texas and, and one by the AMA and the AAJ as well as others. So we're all in agreement that the patient shouldn't be in the middle of this, but what the implications, Todd, for that change, what are those? So essentially the plan, uh, the arbiter would look at the plan payment amount uh, and what the plan decided was the appropriate amount by what they have contracted with other, other providers that are in network. Typically those in network rates are somewhat lower. Uh, so uh, by weighting that unfairly, it meant that providers, physicians included would be at a disadvantage in that arbitration process and likely end up being paid lesser amount. The most important thing to remember here though, is the patient is totally removed from the process. The physician arguing for a more fair payment from the plan does not impact in any way uh, the amount the, the patient would be uh, obligated to pay. They are protected and you know everyone agrees on that. So you mentioned a number of different lawsuits. Let's start with the one where we've got some uh, recent news and that's the one uh, from Texas. Absolutely. What's the background there? Yeah. No, so Texas filed a suit um, back in uh, the back towards the end of the year in the Eastern District of Texas, uh, making the arguments that several other suits, including the one the AMA has 
uh, AMA uh, has filed with the American Hospital Association, uh, basically arguing that the government in interpreting the, the, the regulations, or in writing the regulations, interpreting the statute unfairly, essentially put their thumb on the scale uh, to favor uh, the health plans and not give equal weight uh, to the other uh, items that the providers or physicians could submit uh, as was required uh, by the law. And last week, uh, Texas won. And they not only won on the fact that, uh, that the government had read the statute improperly and, and weighted things improperly, uh, they also won on a, on a claim they brought that the government unfairly did not give all of us the opportunity to comment and kind of rush the regulation through without going through the normal process. Uh, so it's a pretty big deal. It was a very strong ruling, and the judge was very clear uh, that the statute says uh, that these things are to be uh, considered equally and not favor given to one one side or the other. So how does that impact us? What's the next step there? Is is that the end of it, so to speak? Well, or? It, it, it would be great if, they, if, if that's the end of it, because the ruling is exactly what, uh, what I think uh, is not only correct, but what is fair. Um, the government does have 60 days to appeal, uh, and they're going to be under a lot of pressure from the uh, payers uh, to appeal. Uh, there are also all these other lawsuits uh, that have to be resolved as well. And so this could continue to work its way through the court. Uh, but if the indication and the ruling from Texas is any indication of the direction and the way the courts will look at this, I think it's very favorable and we're very hopeful that at the end of this process, uh, that we will see the interpretation of the statute uh, as uh, applied fairly, uh, like was intended uh, when we uh, supported the legislation. Well, thanks for your continued work on that and a shout out to our, our friends and uh, Texas Medical Association for their continued work as well. Um, on, the, on the burden front or burden reduction front, something your team spends a lot of time looking at, one of the key elements there is this issue around prior authorization. Uh, any news happening on that front? Well, unfortunately, I wish there was, but there's not a lot uh, in terms of improvements that we've been working on and that, quite frankly, the industry has been promising to streamline and make this more efficient uh, for a number of years. Uh, but there hasn't been a lot of movement. AMA survey uh, has just come out with our annual survey that pretty much documents uh, the status quo, and even in some cases, a little bit worse. You know, insurers tout uh, to employers that these programs, these utilization management programs, including prior authorization, uh, can result in cost savings. They even say to the public that we're stopping providers from providing all this care that you shouldn't be getting, um, which is, uh, you know, I think any physician who has had to sit on the phone for hours trying to get a simple a drug approved or a simple procedure approved uh, would disagree with that. Uh, but the new survey from the AMA, uh, the kind of the updated survey from the AMA uh, shows, as we know, uh, that these uh, issues have pretty severe consequences for patients. The most startling finding in my mind uh, was that 34% of physicians reported that a prior authorization had led to a serious adverse event with one of their patients. And so the need to continue to work to streamline, right size these prior authorization requirements uh, is is really critical uh, in order to uh, 
protect our patients from those adverse consequences. So I know one of the, this is one of your top priorities for 2022. Anything uh, specific you want to talk about in terms of what the AMA is, is working on? No, absolutely. There's a couple of things out there that are very promising. There's a great deal of bipartisan congressional support for uh, the legislation. I believe it's the Seniors Timely Access to Care Act, uh, which would bring a lot of important uh, prior authorization reforms to the Medicare Advantage program and really demonstrate that the industry can live with these reforms and still and still be able to uh, care, care for patients in a reasonable way. Uh, another th trend that we're seeing, which is a positive one, is the concept of a gold card. Uh, Texas, again, our friends in Texas have passed a, a bill in the state that, that looks very promising. And there are similar efforts uh, at the federal level uh, to say that if a physician or other provider routinely receives prior authorization for a particular service or a particular type of care, uh, that they would not need to continue to jump through that hoop every time they need a patient approved. And so it's a way of streamlining um, uh, clearly unnecessary authorizations. And we're hopeful that different reforms uh, like Gold Card and some other efforts to streamline utilization management programs uh, can right-size some of these programs. Uh, well, let's move on to a, a third topic, uh, very, very hot topic. Uh, which is Medicare payment reform. Uh, some of you out there may not know a uh, big move uh, with the support and help of the AMA at the end of uh, last year was to avert uh, what could have been potentially devastating cuts uh, in uh, payments for physicians. Todd, obviously, you know, what you've talked about before is this issue is not over and it's not something that can be just handled by kicking the can down the road, so to speak, every year. What, what's in store for the coming year? Well, you're right, Todd. Uh, we constantly seem to be fighting to stop the next cut. Uh, it's always a cut hanging over our heads that must be stopped because of the, the way the payment system is set up. Um, it's, it's not sustainable. We cannot continue to just make the entire effort of the physician community stopping the next cut. Uh, it's creating huge uh, financial instability. Uh, in the physician, uh, Medicare physician payment program for a lot of reasons. One, uh, physicians never know in the next year what the payment rates are gonna be. Uh, there's also um, statutory payment cuts uh, that we're facing. There are lack of inflationary updates. We have budget neutrality, which means when we're able to get an increase in one service, then all other services must be decreased to compensate for it. And also the significant administrative costs that physicians face in complying with uh, some of the quality programs like, like the MIPS program, over $12,000 a year per physician. Uh, so these type of pressures on a Medicare physician payment system, which has not provided updates to physicians uh, adequate to meet their cost in many years. In fact, over the last two decades, physician payments under Medicare are up 11%. And th over 3% of that came just came just last year in an effort to provide some relief from uh, the negative pressures that COVID had placed on the healthcare system. Uh, meantime, costs for running a physician practice over that period are up almost 40%. Wow. And these gaps just continue to grow. Most other Medicare providers have in their payment system uh, some, something that keeps them up with inflation related to the medical economic index. Um, that as inflation grows, their payments grow automatically in order that they don't fall behind. Physicians don't have that, unfortunately. And as a result, 
the real inflation adjusted value of physician payments in Medicare is down about 20% over the last two decades. And with all the other pressures on physician practices, that is clearly not sustainable and, and has to be addressed. We really, really are coming to a breaking point. Those are some um, really significant numbers. You, when you think about kind of the go forward here, what does reform look like? Well, I think there's multiple components to it. Obviously, one component is reliable, predictable updates, is to make sure that physicians know that they're not going to be subject to arbitrary cuts in their reimbursement year after year after year. So stability is number one, predictability. Also, some tied to inflation. We can't just continue to watch costs grow out of control and, and, and not keep up with, with, those, with, with being able to meet those costs. There are productivity uh, increases that can happen, but they're not going to be enough to keep up with inflation. And so predictability, some sort of link to uh, cost growth is important. A second component is right-sizing all of these administrative requirements that we find under Medicare, particularly with the MIPS program and making sure that um, the reporting burden does not outweigh the benefit either to the practice or importantly to the to the patient uh, uh, for participating in these programs. Right now, a great number of practices, they would be better off financially not participating because the potential penalties are less than the cost of participating. And that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense financially for the practice and it doesn't make any sense for the implementation or working of a real quality program uh, that focuses on uh, uh, increasing and maintaining quality care for Medicare beneficiaries. Well, number four uh, is uh, quite a big topic uh, that uh, we've been talking a lot about over the course of the pandemic, and that is telemedicine. Um, where does the work stand with that? What, what needs to happen from here? This is uh, not going away, right? No, it's, well, <laughs> the, the, we hope it's not going away. We've talked about this, I think, pretty much every time we've, we've spoken, Todd, in that telemedicine has been you know, this one thing during this entire experience of the last two years that has been a positive has advanced our uh, advanced the Medicare program in terms of being a better program for seniors and the value of telemedicine uh, prior to uh, the waivers that were put in place during the public health emergency. Telemedicine was really only available to a very small number of beneficiaries located mostly in rural areas and even then only through certain designated originating sites. They couldn't do it from their home. Uh, they couldn't do it if they weren't in certain shortage areas. Uh, so that was waived during the pandemic and it has proven extremely valuable. Um, the bad thing is though, when the public health emergency ends, those waivers end and Congress is the one that has to step up and make the changes in the statute in order to continue in, in order to continue the program. Otherwise, all this value we've seen created for in this new benefit for Medicare beneficiaries uh, will go away. Anything in particular uh, on the agenda that we're doing to challenge or to address the challenge there? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of bills. There's broad bipartisan, this is important. There's broad bipartisan support in Congress for this. Uh, this is uh, proven extremely popular. Uh, there's a couple of bills, the Telehealth Modernization Act, of 2021 and the Connect for Health Act uh, is another. Uh, both of those bills would essentially uh, uh, get rid of the need to have the waiver. They would, they would make this part 
uh, of the Medicare program, get rid of the geographic and originating site restrictions, uh, which is critical. The barrier uh, is the cost. Just to, the way the Congressional Budget Office, which determines how much we have to pay for these things, looks at it, is that this is not a new benefit. This is, I mean, not a, they, they say it's a new set of services on top of all the other services that Medicare is paying for. They don't see it as we do as substituting for many of the in-person care services that a, a beneficiary might receive. And so they just add on the cost of each of these, each of these services, which makes it really, really expensive, which is why Congress has not been able to address it so far. What we are facing right now is continued short-term extensions, efforts by Congress to say, okay, we will, if the public health emergency expires, we will extend this by one year um, or, or six months or whatever they can afford you know, in any particular bill. And so uh, for a while, we're stuck in that pattern. Again, broad support uh, of continuing this, uh, but it is going to take a big effort and a, probably an expensive effort uh, at the end of the day in order to make this a permanent part of the Medicare program. But we are also working to identify more and more data and prove, uh, make our case to the Congressional Budget Office that they are looking at this incorrectly, that this does substitute. It's a more efficient way of providing care. In a lot of cases, it prevents a lot of care, a lot of un unnecessary visits from occurring. And so they should not see it as a big, as a huge coster. Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. So surprise billing, prior off, uh, Medicare payment reform and telehealth. Four big topics for 2022. It sounds like we have a lot of work to do this year. And there's plenty more where that came from, but but those are those are really critical ones. And and uh, and we are getting a lot of support from members, uh, both members of the AMA, but also uh, members of Congress, uh, wanting to address these issues. Todd, thanks so much for being with us here today. That's it for today's Moving Medicine video and podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on our YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of these terrific episodes or check out all our videos and podcasts at ama-assn.org slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This has been Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine.